The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Man, I was eager to get up here and preach. I jumped the gun before they read the text. Sorry, guys. Thanks for reading the Word of God to us. Well, it's spring break. Yes. So for, for some of you, it means something. For other of you, you're like, oh, yeah, it's spring break. I still got to work, right? Uh, but one thing it does mean is that lots of people are traveling. So we want to remember them as they travel. We may even have some vis- visitors here today. It's also spring as those Bradford pears bloom, and it looks like uh, winter in the middle of spring, yet it smells like dead fish. And you wake up with a headache in the morning. So that's not good. Except it's beautiful. And uh, my daughter woke up sick this morning. I know. It's tough seeing your daughter sick. So whether you're traveling or have headaches from all the allergies or you have children that are sick, I want to extend the grace and peace of Jesus Christ on you this morning. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks, as always, for your word. Your word is life to us. And so we pray for ears to hear. We pray for hearts to follow. And we pray for bodies to give. And I pray this morning for the gift of preaching. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're in the season of Lent, and we've been preaching on the cruciform life. And the cross of Jesus Christ, and all that it does for us, it is a great mystery. For we started the sermon series, I preached from 1 Corinthians, where the cross and all its mystery is the wisdom and power of God. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. We can't imagine that this is God's way in the world, suffering and death. And then Brett, last week, he preached on the love of the cross, and the cross is not The cross is not, love is not why Jesus goes to the cross. Let me get it right. Love is not why Jesus goes to the cross. It's the how God loves us. I thought Brett did a wonderful job of of saying that. This is not not the why Jesus loves us. But this shows how to love. And it just doesn't show how he loves us, but this is what love looks like. Love looks like suffering and dying for someone else. In our text today, from John 12, it says that Greeks came, and they wanted to see Jesus. But leading up to this point, you have to understand, the stories that happen right before John tells this story is that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he is anointed with perfume, the Pharisees seek to kill him, and then... In verse 17, it says, Now the crowd that was with him, 
when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Then it continues on. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they came to him with a request. He said, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip, he went to tell Andrew. And Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But even though it says, the Pharisee says the whole world wanted to see him. The whole world was after him. Not only Jews who saw the miracles, but Gentiles as well. Everyone was looking after him. And Philip and Andrew walk up and say, hey, there's some people here to see you. His response is that he totally ignores it. He doesn't even acknowledge that there's people that want to see him. He just moves on and he says this. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is interesting because in John, he talks a lot about the hour and, and, and the hour that'll come. And he says, up until John chapter 12, he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then all of a sudden, here, when everybody's looking for him, he says, now. Now my hour's come. My hour has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says this, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for all eternity. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So when seemingly the whole world, as John puts it, is looking for Jesus, he totally ignores it. And he says, the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. And then he begins by turning to an agricultural metaphor which is typical of Jesus. But my experience with agriculture, even though I've grown up in Oklahoma and Texas, I don't know much about agriculture. In fact, when I moved to Uganda, I was fairly committed, so much so, to learning about culture and the ways of life of rural Ugandans whom I served and who I walked alongside, that at one point I went and spent two and a half weeks. I drove three hours Deep into the village, there was no, not even cell phone coverage. They have cell phone coverage in the weirdest places. You literally see people walking out of their mud huts with cell phones. You're like, what world do I live in? And I committed to going out there and to building a mud hut, to sleeping in it, to digging in the garden, to bond and learn about culture. And so one day, the family I was staying with, they gave me the assignment of shepherding and herding the cattle. I thought, how hard is this? 
You just walk around behind the cattle. Until one of the cows started tromping off through someone's corn. And I thought, oh, here we go. So I'm going, I'm going, I'm, and then it's pretty hard to get the cow to turn around. That cow is really, really big. It was a lot bigger as I got closer. Like I was kind of far behind. As I got closer, it was really, really big. So I'm trying to poke the cow and hit the cow, and the cow goes back. And by the time I get the other cow, I realize there is a whole herd of cows over in this garden and a whole herd of cows in this garden, and one is running down the road. And I was like, oh. And then it hit me. I don't know how many cows there are. <laughs> Shepherding 101, before you start, count all the cows. <laughs> because now, when I had to leave to get the one and come back, I don't know if there's cows I can't see. And so I'm sitting there standing, and then the 13-year-old boy who usually shepherds the cows, I see him all, I turn around, and he's just standing there, and I just look at him like this, and he just goes... And then in like 10 seconds, all the cows are rounded back up, and he takes over. I think my, uh, my uh, career in shepherding cows lasted about five minutes, and disaster happened. Well, I didn't understand much about herding cattle, the next day we got up early, and we took our hose out into the garden, and we dug little holes, and we dropped seeds, and then we'd cover it over. That one wasn't hard for me to understand. It's not hard for me to understand that taking a little small seed and digging a hole and burying it in the ground and covering it up, it's not hard for me to understand, one, why we do that. It's because I like to eat. And it became reinforced in me that food doesn't come from Walmart. Or whatever grocery store. You have to drop a seed in the ground. And that seed has to be buried and die. And you know it's true that life does not come until that seed dies. And Jesus goes on and says, if you love your life, you can't really follow me. But if you hate your life, you'll have it forever. And what he's talking about there is not the kind of hate that's like this self-hate. The kind of hate that would lead one to really do something bad to themselves or have really bad self-esteem. It's not that kind of psychological hate because in the end, that, that kind of hate or self-loathing, that, that's the kind of self-loathing you just can't get past yourself. That you hate yourself so much that you just can't really get past yourself. But this is a different kind of, this is a different kind of hate. This is one that almost forgets about yourself. It says, I prefer him 
over me. I prefer that life and the life that he offers over anything that I could give. It's a disposition that denies itself. It's actually a disposition that looks like this when he says, unless you hate your own life, what he's calling for is submission and obedience. That I'd rather obey someone else than myself. In fact, I've noticed this. We have a a short little time-lapse video. This is actually a seed of wheat in the ground. And what I found interesting when I found this, not, still not knowing, I know how to plant a seed in the ground, but not knowing how it grows. What struck me was, is the seed, its first move wasn't up to get out, get itself head above the, the ground. I mean, just like a farmer that drops a seed and then buries it. When we're dropped into the ground and we die, What the seed does is it actually, it seems to embrace it. It seems to go down deeper and it submits more. Like that instinct to go down into the ground, its first instinct. Did you see the little sprouts that came out? The sprouts went down and it anchored itself in its own death. It anchored itself more and more into the ground. And then over time, it slowly produced fruit. But that seed... The seed that was under the ground, while it produced other seeds, that seed never came up again. That seed was buried and dead. And only when it commits to not coming up again and actually roots itself more deeply into that grave, into that ground, then it produces fruit. The seed is never com- is committed to never coming out of the ground again, but only as something completely new, completely transformed. Food for others. Life for the world. Then Jesus goes on to say this. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. I love, find it interesting how he says, for the one who serves me will follow me. As if just serving is not enough. Just acts of service. It's actually this life lived in proximity to Jesus that you live in such close proximity to Jesus and following him that your life actually begins to look like his. When I was in college, long time ago, we had a suite. So I was in a room, I had a roommate, then there was a bathroom in the middle, and we had three other rooms, so there's eight of us. And during my time in college, Seinfeld was at its peak. How many of you guys watch Seinfeld? Thursday nights, 8 o'clock. It's back when like Thursday night television was a thing. You guys don't have a clue, but the rest of you guys can join me. I love how they laughed and you're like, yes, we're so sad about Thursday night television. Must see, yeah, it was called Must See TV. We would pile in our room to watch Seinfeld. Loved watching Seinfeld. 
But as time went on, what I noticed was is that our entire suite, all the guys in our suite, what I felt like was happening was that not only would we watch Seinfeld on Thursdays, but during the week, I felt like I, more and more I was living in a Seinfeld episode. I mean, at first, I think it was just fun to reenact it. But over time, I realized they're not just reenacting this. This is the way we live in the suite. It's a Seinfeld episode. Unfortunately, my roommate found so much affinity with Kramer that I was living with Kramer. He would literally walk in the door like this every time. I thought, Ryan, what are you doing? He goes, what? He didn't even know he's doing it. But if you spend enough time with something or someone, even Kramer, you begin walking in the door like him. So following Jesus, spending enough time with Jesus means this. It means suffering. It means death. It means a cross. Because when you follow Jesus, that's where he goes. I've read the Gospels a lot. Every time I read them, he always ends up there. It's funny how that story never changes. He always ends up suffering, dying on a cross. But it's not that we seek suffering for its own sake. It's not that we just go around and say, how can I suffer more and more? Let me find ways to suffer. No, it's that in following Jesus, it means that we learn to obey. And when we learn to obey, suffering and death follows. Because as our text says, Jesus obeys even unto death. I heard someone tell this story. They were in a small town one time. And they saw a little placard, one of those placards that I, I guess it was, uh, they wrote it themselves and it, it was, they created it. It said this, it was in a little mom and pop shop in a small town. It said this, this is a nonprofit operation. We don't intend it, it just works out that way. God is not committed to human failure in the matters of the way the world would see is successful. But for the obedient, those who are obedient to Christ, it just works out that way. That if you're obedient to Christ, we suffer. We didn't mean to suffer, we just obeyed. And it worked out that way. And actually, Jesus says, this is what honor and glory actually looks like. This is what honor and glory looks like for a disciple. The Christian's hour of glory and honor is identical with the hour of obedience and servanthood. It's identical with the hour of suffering and death. This is why Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless, if you hear that word unless, that's a discipleship word. Unless 
you die. Unless you hate your life. Unless you follow me. There is no life. One person that for me exemplifies this text and the cruciform life. We can put his picture up. Some of you may recognize this picture. I mean, you won't know him personally. He's been dead a long time. But he was a German man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived from 1904 to 1945. So if you know anything about history, you know a little bit about towards the end of his life what was going on. And he was a prominent Christian leader during the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. He began resisting the Nazis in, the 1930, in 1933, and he raised his voice against Hitler's persecution of Jews. And he insisted that the church, and this is a quote, he insisted that the church just not bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam the spokes of the wheel itself. And he was put on a blacklist by Hitler. So much so that he was not only a Christian leader, but he was a teacher as well. And so he developed seminaries, but these seminaries had to go underground. And so they lived kind of like a monastic communities. Life, he wrote a book called Life Together. It's a very, very it's a Christian classic, Life Together. And it's a reflection out of his own experience of living in these underground communities. And so, while being blacklisted by the Nazis, his friends encouraged him. They urged him to flee to America. They had an opportunity to go to America, and he taught in a prestigious university in New York. So, in 1939, just before the war began, he fled. And while he was there, he had this overwhelming sense of conviction. And he thought, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have left. Because he knew, he said, how can I be a part of healing the church if I'm not there to suffer with the church in its greatest time of need? And so, against the advice of his friends, he got on the last ship, the last transatlantic ship to cross back over to Europe before World War II started. And so when he got back, he joined his brother-in-law. Even though Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a committed pacifist, he joined his brother-in-law, who was a resistance, he was part of a small resistance against Hitler, that eventually was planning the assassination, some of those assassination attempts that failed against Hitler. But his role in this was to carry documents back and forth like to Britain and, and to other European nations. And what he used that opportunity for was to build relationships, ecumenical relationships with other churches and what he called the confessing church, the, the church that just didn't go with the state but confessed its allegiance to Jesus because he knew he was going to need these relationships once the war ended and he was going to have to pick up the pieces of a broken people and a broken church in Germany. So he gave his life to this until one day the Nazis found him and he spent two years in prison. In fact, we have letters from Bonhoeffer in prison. 
But in 1937, he wrote a book, this book here, still sold today. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a Christian classic. I have a copy here. If you haven't read this book, I'd read it. And before he went back to Germany and was arrested and spent two years in prison, he knew the call of Jesus because we can read about it in his book. In his book, he says, grace is the life of the church. He fully confessed that grace was the life of the church. But his issue was, is that he pushed back against grace that wanted to receive all the benefits without participating and counting all the cost. In fact, he called that kind of grace cheap grace. That wants to receive all the benefit without participating in suffering and counting the cost. In fact, modern day people have talked about this Christians that today, some Christians, maybe many of us too, are vampire Christians. This is a funny term. And what they mean by that is that it's, it's Christians who only want Jesus, who are only interested in Jesus for his blood. They can receive all the benefit, but they have to give very little. So I want to read to you. Here's what he says. He talks about cheap grace, and he talks about costly grace. And here's what he says, a few things. Cheap grace is the proclamation of forgiveness without requiring, requiring a repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without a cross, it's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But then he says, but here's what costly grace is. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. And for the, for the sake of it, a person will gladly go and sell all that he or she has to go and get it. It is the pearl of great price. To buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods and go seek after. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a person will pluck out an eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Thank you, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he knew about this kind of cost. Because after two years spending in prison on April 9th, 1945, just weeks before the end of the war, literally just a week or two from when the camp and the prison that he was at was liberated. The Nazis, the Gestapo, sentenced him to death. And early on the morning of the night, they stripped him down naked and shamed him. Then they marched him out to the gallows and he hung by his neck. And he writes in this book, that it's cost of discipleship, he writes this. He said, when God calls you, 
He bids you to come and die. I often tell my students that I am perfectly fine with the church marketing itself. I mean, how do you survive unless you market the church, right? I'm perfectly fine with the church marketing itself, as long as our marketing slogan is, come die with us. Which sounds crazy, right? No one's going to come. But that's your call. Bonhoeffer's right. When he calls you, he bids you come and die. And so the question today is this, will you come and die? Will you die to the control that you've been hanging on to? Do you need to let it go? Will you die of all the expectations you have of a spouse or a kid or someone at work that are just causing problems that are just your own expectations? Can you die? Can you die to a sense of superiority and humble yourself before others? Maybe you need to die to those who you consider your enemies. Maybe reconciliation needs to happen. And we can go on and on, but let's just say it straight. Maybe you just need to die to the sin that's in your life. confess and repent embrace embrace that death Jesus began with the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified and he finishes with this and my soul is troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour no it was for this very reason that I've come. Say, Father, glorify your name. And then down in verse 30 he says, The voice was not, the voice that you just heard was not for my benefit, but it's for yours. Now the time of judgment is on this world. Now the prince of this world has been driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You remember at the beginning, all people were searching for him. And he ends with this hour of glorification to where He's going to draw all people, and this is the place he's going to draw all people in his suffering and his death. I remember when I was a missionary, one short story. I was a missionary, and we were having a time of worship together. And it was one of those times where you just moved. The singing just moved you. I had a very good friend named Renee who is a missionary, very close friend of our family from another town. And at one point, she just leaned over, and she's like, isn't this amazing? And I go, yeah, it's amazing. So can you imagine if Jesus came back right now, all the glory and honor? And I didn't say this to her, but I said, yeah. In my mind, I said, yeah. He would look like the suffering crucified one. Because that's what honor and glory looks like. So the call today is this. Do you worship in awe and go, glory and honor? And you walk out of here thanking God for what he's done for you, which is a good thing. 
Or do you really hear the call? And when you worship, you walk out of here and go glory and honor. I need to obey. I need to die. How are you going to walk out of here today? With glory and honor that just sits there and thanks God for what he's done. Or one that gets in there and says, I'm going to obey. I'm going to be a wheat so that the world may have life and they may recognize what true glory and honor looks like. What will you do today? Let's stand and sing.